I was working at a local cafe a couple of weeks ago when the Wi-Fi dropped off. It was chaos. Confused and bewildered freelancers, everyone whipping their head around to understand what was happening. Me, scrambling to tether to the internet with my cell phone. We might not yet have the robot housekeepers from the Jetsons, but there is no denying that technology has changed the world of work, the way we work, and how we think about it. Booming industries in Silicon Valley and Waterloo, apps that have mainstreamed the side hustle, AI taking our jobs. We often hear about how technology is revolutionizing work, but what we don't hear about enough is the effects of technology on workers. Not just the extremes, but who's benefiting from these advances and who's not. Why is it worth fighting for the future of work to be decent? And how do we do that? I'm Asma Malik with the Atkinson Foundation. This is Lovers and Fighters, the second podcast series on Atkinson's Just Work It platform for podcasts and events for and by millennial workers. Here we meet people wrestling the line between heart and grit in today's decent work movement. What do workers, especially millennial workers, love enough to fight for? We invite conversations across generations, within sectors and more, to understand and be inspired by the motivations and questions driving their work. In this episode, we speak to Kay Dyson Tam and Jennifer Hollett, two technology lovers who are fighting for decent work as the future of work. Kay is the manager of Impact and Innovation at a Toronto nonprofit, working on creating systemic solutions to end youth homelessness. She has worked at the intersection of tech and community organizing for a number of years. Jennifer Hollett uses social media to connect people to social justice, most recently as the head of news at Twitter Canada, and was also the Atkinson Associate for Civic Technology before that. Here's our conversation. So welcome, uh, Kay and Jen. Thanks so much for being here. I'm going to start off by just asking each of you to tell me your full name, your title, and who you work with. And let's start with you, Jen. Hi, I'm Jennifer Hollett, and I have lots of titles. It's hard to just pick one. I am the head of news at Twitter Canada, but I like describing myself, as I do in my Twitter bio, as a smash-up of tech, news, and, and politics, because I've done a lot of different things over the years, and I think that's becoming the norm, actually, for a lot of people. It's not the linear career path, but doing lots of different things. How about you, Kay? I'm Kay Dyson Tam, and right now I'm the coordinator of the Better Way Alliance, and also with another hat, uh, the manager of Impact and Innovation at Eva's Initiative. So wearing a couple different roles here. Um, I work with small businesses that are interested in implementing decent work practices, as well as uh, through my role with Eva's, a lot of folks who are interested in creating systemic shifts towards eradicating youth homelessness here in the greater Toronto area. Well, very cool, and we're very excited to have you both with us and in this conversation. I'm going to start with you, Jen. You use uh, social media to connect people to social justice. I think you were the Atkinson Associate on Civic Tech, and like you said, are presently the head of news at Twitter Canada. What I'd love to know is how did you come to love technology? So in high school, which was back in the 90s, I fell in love with zines. I spent my free time creating my own little zine and mailing it to other zine makers across North America. So I was really excited when I got to go to university in 1994 
not only because I was studying journalism and communication, I was, you know, in Montreal, but I got access to the internet. I got my first email address. So I started connecting with some of these these friends that I had made uh, across North America and some cases all over the world. And I had a homepage and it was plain text with links to some of the images from my, my zine. But I realized, wow, this is far easier than pulling out my typewriter, which is what I was doing, and asking my friends who are artists to design art and you know, going to the local copier place in my hometown and then mail. Like, this is far easier. And then a couple years later, graphics emerged on Netscape, right? And I just saw the potential of what technology could do, which is basically bring us together to have a conversation. I mean, more than a decade ago, my friend and I started a webzine. I right? love it. And it yeah. was to like amplify underrepresented voices of women of color, mostly young women of color. But now thinking back to it and like what made a zine scrappy, right? Mm-hmm. And how that translates to technology. And then there's so many new iterations of that too, which is about reaching people in that same raw way. And I think it's kind of kind of cool. And perhaps a podcast is an audio zine in a way. Yeah. Okay, you know, you've used digital tools in web development and design work, in jobs counseling and training students at Mars, uh, where you supported uh, youth social enterprises and entrepreneurship and ran a fellowship program. And even now at the Better Way Alliance, tech is uh, core to all of those different things Mm -hmm. that you've done. How did you come to love technology? I had a computer geek dad, so I have grown up with the internet because he had it in our home way before, I think, most folks. And so I think, yeah, I'm I'm lucky enough to be a a digital native, as it were. And I love tech, but I also know that it has this whole social and historical and economic history that this tech fetishism of of my era doesn't necessarily capture. And so I think it's really important to think about how tech is a reflection of an exacerbation even of some of the societal ills. Um, So yeah, talk a little bit about that. Like what do you struggle with in in the tech space for all its potential and capability to to connect, what what are some of the the challenges that you've seen? We are more and more having two divergent economies, right? One is folks that can access tech and the wealth that comes with it. It is the new capital, it's the new oil, you know, all these sorts of things. And so the folks that can access that profit from it. And then there's, of course, those that are sort of left behind and are seeing more and more precarious work introduced by these tech platforms. And I think that's a really dangerous thing when we're talking about the future of work is forgetting those very skilled laborers, but but low-wage work or people-centered work or all these sorts of things that aren't necessarily included in this shiny uh, future of work conversation that we often have. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to to that point, I'm going to I'm going to quote someone here. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we look at the future of work, are we asking the same question? And it's actually an inquiry, Jen, that you raised mm-hmm. um, as our Atkinson fellow in June of 2016. So almost two years ago. And when I was kind of preparing for our conversation and reading that back, it still felt relevant as ever. And at the time, you tweeted something that I think is also something that I've turned over in my mind uh, many times is uh, my business and tech friends talk about the hashtag future of work completely differently than my underemployed and activist friends. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about how were those conversations different? 
Yeah, so in my activist circles, and that's a combination of friends who I've met from my time in in politics and just other friendships that I've built often over Twitter or in shared spaces where people come together to march, to protest, to, to brainstorm. I know a lot of people super talented, freshly out of school, who have three or four jobs uh not by choice. I think there is sometimes a positive spin on it to Mm -hmm. embrace it and to make it work, no pun intended. But in tech spaces, when you go to conferences that have themes around the future, tech trends, Mm -hmm. uh, work, career. AI will change everything. Yeah, or, or even how do you retain talent? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? How do you retain talent? So working at Twitter, for example, it's the first time in my career where someone has been trying to retain me, right? That I'm seen as valuable and that I could leave and go to a competitor and they're trying to keep me. I'm used to, over a decade, working in newsrooms where I was told, you're lucky to have a job. You know how many people want your job? Look at this pile of... Re-. Right? It, it, it's the op- opposite dynamic. So often the conversations around tech and work, it comes back to how do you create a workspace to get the most out of your team? How do you, whereas future of work when I'm connecting in a room like this is how can we make sure that there are enough jobs and that the jobs are good ones Mm -hmm. and that it's not the the gig economy and there are much larger questions. Those conversations could be happening together, Mm -hmm. but there's such separate spaces and there is a class divide that comes with that even though people in tech might not identify that way. Mm-hmm. And Kate, from what you've seen, you've been involved in the fight for decent work and the, the future of work conversations and, like we mentioned, many different capacities. And also from our conversation, you were actually at Mars when Jen had identified this hashtag future of work mm-hmm, conversation mm-hmm. Uh, emerging. And what are your impressions of not just who's in the conversation, but if there is a way for us to bridge the, the divide on the hashtag future of work? And what does that mean? for decent work with your most recent kind of experience uh, with the Better Way Alliance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think some of the ways that we start bridging these conversations are by personalizing it. And I noticed that lots of people don't become interested in decent work in that movement until their own kids can't get a job or until they are looking for a job post-university and sort of in this debundled place where you're getting all sorts of gigs and short contracts and really precarious work, you're not able to find the secure work of of times past. And so that, I think, is a real opportunity point to spur people to sort of see these as conversations that are important for their own well-being for future generations, as we talk about the the massive amounts of creation wealth that are happening. And it's sort of an opportunity to pull in folks that are unusual suspects, as it were. Like you said, often the people whose futures are actually on the line aren't the ones who are necessarily being listened to or talked to. They're more kind of done to. You know, at Atkinson, we're interested in hashtag future of workers Mm. as much as uh, we are of hashtag the future of work itself. Uh, You know, as interested, we like to say sometimes, as interested in EI as in AI. Mm. And I guess my question to you both is, what have you seen in the changing world of work that is innovative and exciting and that would also be described as decent work? We really have to break open 
how we discuss decent work because it's connected to so many issues. So I think when people reflect on what it means to have a good job, they would probably point to vacation days, mm-hmm. how much the grading paid, sick days, uh, work-life balance. Uh, but I look at the Me Too movement. That's decent mm-hmm. work. That's women saying, I have a right to be safe at work. And for me, I'm 42, thinking back to all the times in work, there was something inappropriate, big or small, and I felt that's just the way it is. Mm -hmm. That's just the way it is in the media industry. That's just the way. Or thinking, who am I supposed to, right? That's a decent work issue. Now, I don't think Me Too or Time's Up says we're a decent work movement, but it actually is. It's about creating an environment where people, especially women and women of color, and at the core, working class women Mm -hmm. who who don't have those good jobs, uh, making sure that you know, we can protect them in the in these situations. So that's a movement that's really inspired me. And I also think some of the larger discussions in the workplace around diversity and inclusion, and I know these are big buzzwords, uh, to the point that when you start doing diversity and inclusion work in a meaningful way, people say, okay, we're all great, we're, ta- we're talking about it, we feel so proud of ourselves. We say diversity is our strength all over Toronto at every given moment. Uh, But what does that mean? But I actually think at the core of that work is decent work. Because if you're working in a very white space, and I am working in tech in Toronto, so I'm in a very white space and sector in a city that is extremely diverse, then we have to ask the question, how can we get more racialized people into tech? And then you actually have to get to some of these core issues when it comes back to discrimination, education, opportunities for paid internships. And those are all the decent work issues. So I don't think people always formally come into these conversations like we may be doing right now, Mm -hmm. but it's actually connected to a lot of the things we're talking about in this moment. And that to me is promising. The other thing that is always important in these conversations is talking about uh, reskilling and the ability to relearn and, and come back to these things. And that'll be really important over the course of um, the changing future of work. And as, as we talk about securing decent work for ourselves is uh, whether we're teaching young people to be able to relearn and continually learn over the course of their lifetimes uh, so that they're able to adapt to the uh, changing fields that emerge. And I guess I'm really interested in who is coming together to make this innovation a reality? The civic tech groups and movements do a really good job. So in Toronto, there's Civic Tech Toronto. They have meetups every Tuesday night. And what I love about the space that they've created is it's diverse and not just in race and and, and genders, but also in like the city, meaning, so you have your tech folks, right? You have like your young people who are, developers or technologists or are like really into open government. But at every meeting, there's someone who shows up because they do a round of introductions and says, I'm just a person (laughs) who wants to learn more about technology, or I'm someone who wants to get involved in this issue in the city, and this seemed like a good place, or I'm here because I want to have some pizza and just kind of listen. And that, to me, is the ultimate success if you are trying to bring together technology and connect it to some of the social issues of the moment is how do you create a space where people feel comfortable 
stepping into it, asking questions, introducing themselves, and possibly coming back. Too often, and I've heard this from other women who work in tech, they go to a tech or developer meetup. They're one of the only women in the room. It just feels a bunch of tech bros. They don't feel included. They don't know how to go up and connect with anyone, and then they don't go back. And uh, these civic tech groups, they exist all over the world. They learn from each other. They're very open with their their planning, open to feedback, and they also have policies in in place and programming in place. This isn't by accident. They're constantly testing and figuring out how to create these spaces. So I think, you know, that is something that that inspires me, and it's still early days. It could be much larger. We could take it, you know, outside of the spaces that they're currently in, and I think open it up. So I love when uh, I see students coming through, uh, because ultimately, Technology is everywhere. It's not mm-hmm. just you know me working at Twitter. We're we're all living and working in in tech. So how can we take it to the streets? Literally, let's take it to the streets. I want to ask you if you were to convene, you know, in your view, the best table of people to make work in the digital economy more decent. Who would be at that table? I would like to hear from more workers, and that's workers in tech who've maybe never been a part of a conversation like this. It's a young person who's at a homeless shelter, like to have them in the mix, uh, but also someone who is like, I'd like to be a part of this thing, and I don't even know where the door is. Mm-hmm. It is important to center those voices that haven't traditionally been included, uh, not only because there's so many untapped ideas and potential there, but um, because we also need to get this right. We're not going to be able to keep going the way we we have been before. What keeps you in the fight and how do you keep the love alive, right? How do you feed that when uh, there's a lot that's challenging all the time? I feel well supported by my network of really awesome women. Um, I have a lot, I have an army of wise women. Uh, my mom, my partner, my paid therapist, you know, lots, <laughs> lots of folks, lots of mentors. I also know that uh, there's life beyond my work. So as important as this is, having folks who sort of exist outside of it or can remind you of what, what is important in life, I think is uh, really necessary if we're talking about being in this movement the long haul. I think about my own family. So my grandmother, she's from Belfast, didn't graduate high school. And she had all types of jobs from being a janitor at the local movie theater where she proudly marched in her 11 grandkids so we all could have free a ticket and see a movie. And then my mom, who graduated high school but didn't get to go to college or university. And then here I am. I've had this incredible opportunity to do an undergrad in journalism communications, to do a master's at Harvard of all places, and redefine my career. When I think about the future of work, how can we build on the generations so that the next generation has more options? That's where I have hope and what drives me is is just seeing that. So I look at my nieces, and you better bet, I've already told my sister I'd pay for coding camp because I just want them to explore STEM. And if they don't want to do that, if they want to become like my cousin's a hairdresser and she's an awesome hairdresser, I also support that because that's a skill we're always going to need. I'm not going to trust the robots to my hair. Awesome. So now we're going to do our last segment, uh, which is a which is a fun little segment uh, that we've called Love or Fight. And it's pretty simple. I'll say a thing and then you tell me whether you love it or you'd fight it. B corporations, love or fight. Love as it's one of the least bad forms of capitalism fight as we could still do better. <laughs> all right, all right. A compromise position. Yeah, I feel I'm in the middle. Uh, yeah. Is there a dash in there somewhere? <laughs> yeah. Slacktivism, love or fight? fight. Love. 
Ooh. Ooh. Wow. Love, love, <laughs> Differing love. opinions. Go for it, Jen. People need an entry point. And often what's called slacktivism is part of a ladder of engagement. So if you're going to come into an issue like the shelter crisis by signing a change.org petition, that's your entry point in. And hopefully that leads to something else, talking to your friend about it, learning more about the issue. But people rarely just show up on, on the street ready to march. So I say it's great. All right, Kay. Uh, I think you spit-shined it there a little bit. Sounds a lot better. But um, a fight because I think it uh, adds to the culture of complacency. And we actually need to be doing a lot more. And up until very recently, I was happy to click a change.org petition. And I went, well, I am so radical. Look at me go. But for some folks, yeah, it may be necessary. Thought leaders, love or fight. I am all for people who do great thinking and who want to talk about it. But uh, when you frame it as thought leaders, like, what the heck is that? My God. Um, I also say fight. You hear this term thrown around a lot. Are we thought leaders? (laughs) Maybe. Who gets to decide? Who gets to say, you're a trademark thought leader? Of course we need thought leaders. Mm -hmm. But you know what? I'd love to hear... A working class perspective on a lot of issues. So who gets to be thought leaders? It's very classist. It's determined by institutions. It skews white male. So that's the fight. But of course, I think if we were called thought leaders, we might be more more open to that idea. So it's it's the frame that that I think is problematic. I'll recommend you on LinkedIn then. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if we all just recommend each other as thought leaders, maybe we can Amplify. turn this thing around, right? Well, thank you so much for being a part of this conversation. Conversation and you gave us so much to think about, challenge ourselves on, and see as we continue to engage in this conversation on both the future of work and the future of workers. Can you let uh, our listeners know, Jen, where they can find you? Yeah, absolutely. On Twitter, you know, I was going to say that. It's at Jennifer Hollett, uh, and I'm also online at jenniferhollett.com. Awesome. And how about you, Kay? Twitter is great. I'm at Kate Ice and Tam. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. Thanks, Asma. Technology isn't in itself the problem or the solution. Its value depends on what we use it for. It can really help workers, and it can also seriously hurt them. Take domestic workers and live-in caregivers as one example. Twitter enabled MeToo, a hashtag which gave voice to harassment and sexual violence at work and put sexual predators on notice. It opened up a safer space to speak out for domestic workers and caregivers who are, by and large, racialized women and among the least likely to be heard or even believed. Coworker.org and WhatsApp are just two of the latest tech tools decent work organizers are using to grow the movement these days. But then, there are marketplace platforms like Care.com that connect nannies, house cleaners, and care workers to customers in an Uber-like way. The care industry has been flooded with people who are new to this kind of work, who see it as supplementary income rather than as a profession and who undercut wages. Millennials, the kids of care workers, have had to become digital translators to help their parents earn a living managing their parents' online accounts and transactions behind the scenes while navigating their own precarious paths to employment in this wild new economy. Truth is, I'm not as worried about AI eating our jobs as I am about the intense pressure it's putting on low-income workers and their families. I'm also concerned about the disappearance of workplace communities and the widening digital skill gap. If tech creates more insecurity and isolation, we should fight that with everything we've got. 
But if it can be used to create dignified, decent work for everybody, well, that's something worth fighting for. Thanks for listening. Lovers and Fighters is produced by Vocal Fry Studios and hosted by me, Asma Malik, with additional support from Nora Cole. You can find our show notes at atkinsonfoundation.ca slash podcast. Follow us on Twitter at AtkinsonCF and on Instagram at JustWorkIt underscore. Subscribe to our Just Work It platform on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and SoundCloud so you never miss an episode. And your positive ratings and comments ensure that other people can find us too. We love hearing from you. Get in touch with us on social media or at JustWorkIt at AtkinsonFoundation.ca.